Welcome to Biblical Perspectives on Aging, the podcast where you and your church will find answers to the difficult questions that arise as we grow older. On behalf of the Baptist Home, this is your host, Dr. Andy Brames. Dr. Alan Branch, an ethicist who teaches at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, joins us today on the Baptist Homes podcast, Biblical Perspectives uh, on Aging. Dr. Branch, could you just introduce yourself uh, personally and let us know about how and where you serve? Sure. My name is Alan Branch. I've been teaching here at Midwestern. This is my 20th year, and I teach ethics here. I was saved when I was 10 years old, called to preach when I was about 20, and came to Midwestern in 2001. It's a great honor to serve here. My wife is an administrator at St. Luke's on the Plaza uh, here in Kansas City. So she is a a nurse, and she has her master's degree from Missouri Baptist School. She earned her master's degree from Hannibal LaGrange. Okay, okay. Well, this particular episode, uh, the Baptist Home has asked me to have you share your expertise on euthanasia and eugenics. Many of our listeners will know the term euthanasia, but many may not know all of the distinctions that relate to that term. So so let's just start there. What is euthanasia? How do terms such as direct or indirect, active, passive, all those things uh, affect our understanding of the term? Well, I appreciate you asking. So let's talk about the word euthanasia. It's, uh, it's etymology, if you will, where it comes from. It comes from two Greek words that mean good death, euthanatos, good death. So the idea is that you're giving someone a good death as opposed to a bad death. It's an old idea. There were ancient Greek physicians that would, would euthanize people with the primitive drugs such as they had back in the day. So you mentioned a distinction between active and passive and indirect and direct. So I, I want to talk about that for just a second. I'm glad you did. So I define the word euthanasia this way, medicalized killing. That's the simple definition for me, medicalized killing. And there are different ways that people can be killed. I think as a general rule, euthanasia is considered differently from physician-assisted suicide, and it has to do with that indirect and direct distinction. So in physician-assisted suicide, the physician himself or herself doesn't actually kill the patient. The physician provides the means for the patient to kill uh, themselves. And so that would be indirect, if you will, it's indirect killing. So the physician says, here's what you need to kill yourself. So in euthanasia, it's direct. And so in euthanasia, the physician's actually given a large overdose uh, to, to kill a patient. So what you have here in the United States, various states have legalized forms of physician-assisted suicide, but euthanasia is not legal in the United States. However, there are countries around the world, most notably Holland, also Switzerland, where euthanasia, active killing by a physician, is legalized. So key distinction, physician-assisted suicide, the physician provides the means for the patient to kill himself or herself. And then in euthanasia, the physician actually does the killing. So those are two key distinctions. Okay, so, uh, you know, one of the challenges in our world today is that lives are extended so much longer. They are. You know, we're, we're living decades longer than we were just 100 years That's ago. through the Baptist home. Yes, so how, how does that impact people's perhaps desire? Uh, understanding of euthanasia, understanding of, uh, or having a desire to uh, perhaps allow their life to be taken, if we want to use that terminology. I am so glad you asked that because this is a great question for the ministry of the Baptist Home here in Missouri. So let's talk about that for just a second. 
So there's a couple of things that contribute to requests for euthanasia. One of them is poorly managed chronic pain, not so much acute pain, but chronic pain that seems to be ongoing. Another is loneliness. The loneliness can feed depression. And we often think of depression with you know, a high schooler, that, uh, and we think about suicidal ideation with a high schooler when they experience uh, de uh, episodic depression, or maybe a mom, postpartum depression. But listen, senior adults can get depressed as well. So in 1994, the state of New York was taking a long, hard look at their laws against euthanasia. So Governor Mario Cuomo, of all people, Governor Mario Cuomo appointed this uh, blue ribbon panel to investigate the laws in New York about euthanasia. So what I'm about to tell you is very interesting because the people who said this were not a bunch of right-wing Southern Baptists. It was a panel <laughs> appointed by Mario Cuomo back in 1994. And they published this extensive report, we have it here in our library, about uh, euthanasia laws. And in their summary, they said, they identified, I should say, the degree to which poorly managed chronic pain and untreated depression were strongly correlated with requests for euthanasia. And that group appointed by Mario Cuomo said, we do a far better service to our society and to patients to find better ways to treat chronic pain and to treat the, the depression as opposed to making euthanasia more easily accessible. And the depression so often is tied to, again, this feeling of loneliness. I'm a burden on my family, people don't come visit me. This is where Christian ministry, like the Baptist home, come into focus. Because here what you get is Christian ministry. You're not alone. We're walking beside you through the last years of life. We're gonna to minister to you. You're not gonna die alone. We don't view you as a burden. You're important and we're happy to take care of you. And I gotta tell you, that sort of ministry does so much to alleviate request and desire uh, for euthanasia. So God bless the ministry of uh, what you guys are doing. Amen. Thank you for that. So, uh, you know, we, we focus on the right to live and, and uh, evangelical ministries, evangelical people focus on the right to live at birth, especially. But some will argue, well, if there's a right to live, that we should also have a right to die. Uh, what's your response to that argument? And how might, could you elaborate a little bit on some of the other arguments that people use to ab advocate for the practice of euthanasia? Oh, I'm glad you brought up the right to die. So uh, I'm, I'm always <laughs> so uh, my answer is according to Genesis three and Romans five. I don't need you to secure my right to die. Adam already got that for me. Sooner or later, I'm going to die. So I'm always a little nervous when people with large syringes full of uh, lethal doses come around saying, "Hey, I'm here to ensure your right to die." I'm like, "Hey, don't worry, that's going to happen. Following <laughs> the return of Christ, it's going to happen." So I think what people really make mean is, uh, and let me say it this way, most the most common argument really is a very sloppy form of compassion. Uh, Brittany Maynard out of California, uh, this uh, young teacher who was uh, suffering miserably, uh, terribly from cancer, and so she goes to Oregon, and her video became this lightning rod of appeal for, uh, for, for the demand for euthanasia. So it's really a very sloppy form of compassion, that somehow the compassionate thing is to allow someone to die. What I would like to say is, as a culture, we need to be very, very careful because when, when you legalize uh, euthanasia and uh, physician-assisted suicide, you've changed the nature of the doctor-patient relationship. So I want to get historical, for, if I can, for just a second. Sure. 
So the Hippocratic Oath emerged about 400 years before the time of Christ out of pagan Greece. We're not exactly sure who wrote, who wrote it. It's got Hippocrates' name on it, but we're not, not really sure who wrote it. But here's what we know. In ancient Greece, there was a problem with physicians, and the problem was uh, if you had a family member that wanted to get rid of another family member for various reasons, and maybe they're a little sick, they could pay off a physician, and it got to be the point where you didn't really know if the physician was coming to heal, heal you or to hurt you. Hmm. So the Hippocratic Oath said a couple of things. said, we're not going to do abortions, and we're also not going to offer a lethal dose of drugs, even if asked. So this was a reform movement. These guys were a minority and they said, no, we're not going to practice medicine that way. We're only going to come and help and not to harm. So in later generations, that whole concept was picked up in Western medicine by the principle of first do no harm. Now the phrase first do no harm is not in the Hippocratic Oath, but the Hippocratic Oath articulates that sort of principle. So the idea was for 2000 years of Western medicine though, that Here's the job of the physician. First, do no harm. I'm here to help. I'm not here to hurt. Hmm. And that has served us well. The most famous violation of that principle of first, do no harm occurred in Nazi Germany. So let me give another historical story I think gives us perspective. I grant that the Nazi analogy is way overused in too many discussions. But there was an event that occurred in, in Germany, it was called the T4 Project, and most people don't know about this. The T4 Project, it got its name from the address where it was headquartered, Tiergartenstrasse Fear. It was called the T4 Project. This was a euthanasia project in Germany. So uh, what happened was they, st between 1939 and uh, 1942, between 70,000 and 200,000 weak and feeble Germans were executed by the states they were euthanized and so they had physicians doing this and what you need to know is the demand for euthanasia didn't start with the nazis the demand for euthanasia in germany actually started before the nazi party was even around in 1920 a couple of guys a, a lawyer and a doctor wrote this book the release and destruction of life not worthy of living and they said well we got all this post-war debt to pay and we got all these sick people dragging down the society and We'd really be a lot better as a nation if we just eliminated them via euthanasia. And they use this uh, phrase, life not worthy of living. And so they said, there's some life that's just not worthy of living. We need to get rid of them. And there were persistent calls from the medical community in Germany to do euthanasia outside of the Nazi party. So what you have to understand is this program didn't really have its origins with Adolf Hitler and his crowd and Hess and all those evil people. It had its origin with the medical elite. So... The Nazis come along, they say, wow, we got this war, we just invaded Poland, we're gonna have all these, we're gonna need hospital beds for soldiers. So what we need to do is, we need to get rid of all these uh, mentally handicapped people and sick senior adults and people with dementia and what we now call Alzheimer's, all that sort of thing, or ALS, Lou Gehrig's. We just need to get rid of them. So 70,000 to 200,000 mentally handicapped, physically disabled, old senior adult Germans were euthanized by the state in the T4 project. The scary part of this is some of the methods first used to, or first later used to kill Jews in the Holocaust were first used in the T4 project. They perfected their killing methods on weak and defenseless Germans first. 
And this is what happens when you violate the principle of first, do no harm. So I, I'm really concerned about arguments based on compassion because they get very weak and they get very sloppy. And I don't think people take a deep appreciation for the substantial change in the nature of the doctor-patient relationship that comes when you legalize medicalized killing because now you've given the doctor, a physician, a whole new uh, level of authority. And it has happened. Holland is the nation that has the longest experience with euthanasia in the Western world. And what a lot of us, uh, or a lot of people said we're gonna happen 40 years ago when they first started this experiment, 45 years ago, said, hey, listen, right now you're saying this is all voluntary euthanasia. We predict that it will move to involuntary euthanasia. So this is a key distinction for the listeners. What everybody seems to talk about right now is voluntary euthanasia. Some person that goes to their physician says, hey, would you please do this for me? This is what I want to do. Hmm. And what people like me say is, yeah, you better be very careful. When you start giving physicians that sort of authority, it will quickly move from voluntary to involuntary. What that means is someone is euthanized against their will. They don't want to be euthanized, but they are euthanized. And why is that? It's because humans have a very bad uh, track record of managing that sort of authority over life and death very well. And especially when you give it to an elite, they have access to power. And there's so much that goes on in the doctor-patient relationship that really needs to be well considered. Uh, the listeners, you know, if you've been to a physician that listens to you, takes time to try to understand you, Memor remembers why you came the previous time, knows something about you, you feel better about that. But so often, in, especially in the culture where we're in, physicians, by the constraints of the medical system where we're in, don't have the time to build that sort of relationship. And if you have a physician that's actively motivated, that's very pro-euthanasia, and they hardly even know many of their patients, this could be very dangerous. Sure. I want to take something you, that you shared. You've used the word a couple of times in that response, Dr. Branch, saying, uh, using the idea of compassion. Yeah. And with, with compassion, because it's a false understanding of compassion, as you said, compassion, the word, really means to come alongside during the suffering of someone. Yeah. Um, we're trying to alleviate the suffering, supposedly, you know, with, with this idea of, of euthanasia and stuff. So, so what, why do how has that term been adopted in a, in a false fashion, or maybe I should say adapted? Uh, could you speak to that for just a moment? Well, it, it is interesting if you stop and think about it. Uh, the demands for euthanasia based on compassion have not emerged from countries like Rwanda, Burundi, the Democratic Cong uh, Cong uh, Congo. They haven't emerged from Angola. They haven't emerged from Cambodia. It's interesting, the demands for euthanasia based on compassion haven't emerged from countries without any medical care or very poor medical care. They've emerged from nations with the most advanced medical systems in the world. Well, why is that? Well, sometimes it's because we have depersonalized uh, death, if you will. 120 years ago, people died at home. They were surrounded by people. They felt compassion, right? They, they were surrounded by people that loved them. And so there was a feeling of compassion but we have so institutionalized death that people feel alienated and they don't feel compassion, right? So this makes the compassion argument very appealing, but I can't stress enough the degree to which we have depersonalized death and we have institutionalized it 
makes the ministry of places like the Baptist home so important where, where when people die, you're not going to die alone. We're going to be with you. Someone's going to pray with you. Someone's going to read the Bible with you. We're going to sing a hymn. And this is compassion. And so when you have a culture where death has been so institutionalized and people feel alienated, that makes the compassion argument very appealing. You also, also have to remember, at a bigger level, we're in a culture where people are told over and over again, what are they told about their value? They're told this about their value. Your value is based on your external beauty. Your value is based on youthfulness, sexual availability, sexual appeal to other people. I'm 52, and, uh, you know, I look at myself in the mirror, and I'm thinking, you know, there's an old, ugly, bald-headed guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the culture says, oh, look at all these beautiful people. And so if that's what your value has been based on, and think particularly people who do not have Christ in their lives, where are they going to find value at? Mm-hmm. And so suddenly you don't have beauty anymore. Listen, death, that's not pretty. It's not. We know that. And it can be very painful. Well, if you're dying and you're in a dying process, it's going to take six months to a year, a year and a half. And you live in a culture that says your value is based on your physical attractiveness and your sexual availability. And you have none of that left. Then in a twisted sort of way, it makes compassionate sense. Well, just let me get out of this, right? Sure. Christian message is, that um, your value is not based on your physical beauty. It's not based on your sexual availability. Your value is based on the fact you're made in the image of God, that Jesus Christ died for you, that you can be saved, that he has a home for you, that he shed his blood for you, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where your value is found at. So again, Christian ministries like uh, the, the Baptist home have a viral role to pay, uh, not only in in mercy ministry, but also, frankly, in evangelism to win people to Christ because they've lived their entire lives thinking that that's where their value is at. But at the end, to come with a compassionate message that, you know what, your, your value is in that Jesus died for you. Hmm. I'll share with you briefly, Dr. Ben Mitchell was on uh, an episode, prior episode to this one, and he mentioned that he's on the board of a hospital. And in the hospital, uh, they have instituted a program called No One Dies Alone. To where they they have trained the staff and stuff to to do the very same things that you're mentioning that the uh, the Baptist Home and other ministries like that are doing. So in that last uh, discussion, in, in your last response, Dr. Branch, you mentioned the the beauty aspect that that our value is in beauty and all of that. And I want to shift gears from euthanasia to the idea of eugenics. Oh wow! And so. One, one of the aspects, as you know, I want you to define eugenics, but, but let me just set this up for us. Um, one of the aspects that, that eugenics is, is to find those, uh, those traits and, and, and characteristics uh, of a person that is most uh, pleasing, that is most desirable, and to carry on those traits going forward. So you, you might even tie that into what, what the T4 project was as well. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, could you, could you just speak to eugenics and kind of define it for our listeners and, and go from there, please? So first of all, let's talk about eugenics. Eugenics is a nasty idea that emerged out of social Darwinism in the late 1800s is what it is. And so the idea is we are, uh, evolution has just been controlled by random time and chance from their perspective. By the way, um, when you look at the complexity of the human body, 
if the evolutionary worldview is true, and I don't think it is, but if it is, I mean, one would be quite astounded at what random time and chance can do, right? <laughs> <laughs> From their perspective, evolution and natural selection had kind of been out of control, and so you had some humans that were um, less desirable than others. For Darwin himself, he doesn't get into this in uh, Origin of Species, but in his uh, Descent of Man, his second book, it's very eugenic. And in Descent of Man, he talked about the, the different races of the world and which ones were better. And you can guess which one Darwin thought was better. That was white males from England. They were the top of the peak. <laughs> so the idea is we're going to take control of evolution, if you will, and create a better man. Uh, there's a lot of assumptions. So the word eugenic basically means good birth is what it means. So we're trying to develop good birth. Uh, the idea kicked around for several years. In the 1920s, it took on a life of its own. But here in the United States, there's a horrible Supreme Court decision, 1926, Buck versus Bell, where Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, you know, two or three generations of imbeciles is enough. And they allowed the state of Virginia to sterilize a woman against her will. This is all eugenics. It's horrible stuff. But... Uh, you mentioned the T4 project, Nazi Germany. The whole idea was we're going to create Superman, this higher level of, of human race. There's so many bad assumptions in eugenics. One of them is we assume we know what a good human is. Mm. That varies from person to person, right? Uh, from your background and your taste. Let me just be clear. Most uh, vast majority of evolutionary theorists today find eugenics extremely distasteful and they're opposed to it. So to their credit, even though I disagree with their worldview, most of them today are opposed to it. However, you still, it still pops up its head from time to time. James Watson, who along with Francis Crick won a Nobel prize for cracking the DNA code back uh, 60 or 70 years ago, a couple of years back, someone was asked him, well, what do you think about a child with Down syndrome? He said, oh, if it's diagnosed in utero, abort and try again. Mm. And this is eugenics right there. Well, we don't want those sort of children to be born. In fact, here in the United States, I am told, and I'm taking the sources I get this from as, uh, as being authoritative, that 90% of the cases of Down syndrome that are diagnosed in utero in the United States are aborted. This is eugenics. We, we don't want these sort of children. And if you ask people why they want that, they say, well, we don't want these children to suffer. Uh, if you've ever been around Down syndrome children, they're not the ones that are suffering with their Down syndrome as much as other people are made uncomfortable by them. Remember, mm -hmm. we live in a culture um, addicted to beauty. And, uh, and it's not enough that you're a, a fabulous athlete with a, a fabulous body or a supermodel or something like that. Even when they put you on the cover of the magazine, they've got a computer. To, they have to use computerized to alter it, alter it because we still don't think you're beautiful enough, right? <laughs> well, I think we need Down syndrome children. And our culture is uncomfortable with Down syndrome children. I'll tell you why they're uncomfortable. They remind us all of our humanity and our weakness, and we need them. We need them to remind us of that and that we are dependent on others. Well, that's in a... In a nutshell, that's eugenics. Somehow we can create a better human. This is um, uh, some of the new technology that has been developed about uh, genetic engineering. There's this new technology called CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R. It's an acronym that refers to this fabulously uh, easy way of doing genetic engineering. 
it has lowered the cost of genetic engineering. It has made it much easier. Well, a lot of people are suggesting now we can use this new CRISPR. I say we, that's humans, right? Sure. Uh, CRISPR technology can be used to improve the sperm and eggs of, of humans and that parents can pass along desirable traits to their children. You can actually improve your children. This reminds me, do you remember that silly show, The Six Million Dollar Man back in the 70s? Sure, sure. I hear that in the background, we can make him better. We can make him <laughs> <you> know, faster. <laughs> yes, fun. yes. So um, there, there's all sorts of stuff uh, tied in with eugenics. So even though many people today won't use the word eugenics because they know that's a nasty term, some of the things going on in science today actually have strong eugenic overtones. We, we've talked about good death, euthanasia, yeah. good birth, eugenics. Tie those two together because primarily this, this podcast is going to appeal to those who are, are trying to assist senior adults, trying to help those later. So, so what is the problem? If, if, if we make better people from the birth, right. shouldn't that make life better at the end? Well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. So first of all, uh, there's potential for genetic engineering to eliminate some hereditary diseases. Now, God bless, we all would, would want to see things like that happen. If we could somehow make a change in someone's DNA so that they, um, that they uh, did not have a disease. But the challenge is there seems to be a lot of progress and a lot of hope for treating someone's DNA once they are born to correct a genetic disease that wouldn't be a change they would track pass on to their children. There's a lot more moral concern about making what's called a germline change, which means you're changing your eggs and your sperm and what you're passing along to your, to your children, because we're not sure how all those changes affect people. And basically we would be experimenting on children yet to be born, which is a violation of the canon of informed consent, which means, mm someone should voluntarily participate in an experiment. They shouldn't have an experiment forced on them. So I'm optimistic about, in fact, a number of uh, uh, very effective treatments have been developed for some hereditary diseases uh, through genetic engineering. So I'm not trying to throw the entire discipline of genetic engineering under the bus. There's a, a lot of good that's coming out of it, right? Sure. But talk sure. about this when it, it comes to senior adults. And there's a concept that I would like to, to put out, and it's called developmental personhood. It is how secular people think about humans. So for the Christians listening to this podcast, when Christians use the word person, they use the word person as a synonym for human life. You just think, yeah, you're talking about a person, human life. And I agree, you should. But for secular people, personhood is very different from human life. And what they will say is only a person gets the right to life. Just being biologically human doesn't guarantee you the right to life. And so this is how it plays out. And here's the connection between abortion and euthanasia. So at the beginning of life, the reason that many people believe abortion is okay is they will look at a, a child in the womb and they say, well, it might be human life, but it's not a person yet. And so since it's not a person, it's okay to kill it. This is called developmental personhood. Such a person would then suggest, such a human making that argument would suggest that as the child grows and develops, it attains personhood. It grows, it, so it develops into personhood. Now, 
what they do with that on the end of life is if you can develop and attain personhood on the front end of life, then you can lose personhood on the back end of life. So perhaps someone has a debilitating uh, disease like Lou Gehrig's uh, arteriolateral sclerosis, or maybe they have Alzheimer's or Huntington's or some of these things that we all just fear. All mm -hmm. of us. Fear. Sure. Right. So uh, if you have something like that, then as the disease progresses and you lose certain abilities, then some people would argue you then lose personhood. And so that's why they would say euthanasia is okay in some cases because, well, if abortion's okay on the front end because that's not a person, then on the back end of life, euthanasia is probably okay because they've lost certain attributes and they are no longer a person. So this is where Baptists have made a strong stand with which I completely agree. Our statement of faith says, we believe in the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. And so what we're saying is we reject developmental personhood. We don't think you grow into personhood and we don't think you lose personhood. You're a human being. You're a person from conception all the way to death. And from every point in life, no matter how sick we get, no matter how debilitated we are, we're still treated with dignity at every stage. Yeah, thank, thank you for making that distinction, helping people make that connection. Uh, I want to be clear as I ask the question, I don't want to give the false impression that I believe that. I was just trying oh, to set you, set you up for that. Uh, Dr. Branch, is there anything else that you would like to share that perhaps I haven't asked you today? No, I, I tell you, I appreciate the questions. And I think what I would like to say is, we what I would say to the listeners, I have been very involved in ministries, uh, pro-life ministries, Christian life homes, uh, Christian life ministries that are uh, uh, where you have uh, ministries to ladies in a neighborhood and an alternative to Planned Parenthood. I uh, uh, The Liberty Women's Clinic, which my wife and I have given to for years, we really believe in what they do. It's a, a non-denominational group, but they're friends in Jesus. So what they do is they offer um, uh, pregnancy advice to young women, and they urge them not to have abortions, but they also do uh, sexually transmitted infections. They, they deal with those. They do education about that, sexual ethics education. And these are all on the front end of life. And I, in the last 50 years since Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton in 1973, Baptists have been very involved on the front end of life as pro-life. What I would urge the listeners is, if we're going to have a complete sanctity of life ethic, we need to be involved and be pro-life on the back end of life, too. And that's where the Baptist home comes in. And it's ministries like this that we want to support and we want to give money to because it's pro-life ministry. So we're not only pro-life on the front end of life, we're pro-life on the back end of life. And let's do both. Amen. Well, thank you very much. Dr. Branch, how can our uh, listeners pray for you? Uh, anything that, that you might add for, for prayer request? Yeah, you know, I tell you, I appreciate that. I pray for the seminary. Dr. Allen has done a great job leading the school. As you might imagine, in our culture, where, where we're at, a school that says things like, yeah, we don't believe in abortion. We don't believe in euthanasia. We believe in the sanctity of marriage. We believe sex is designed for heterosexual monogamous marriage. You can imagine that there are lots of people who don't like us. Sure. And and so sometimes that can present some difficulties as we try to navigate uh, navigate living in the world as a fully accredited institution. So just keep us in your prayers that way, that we would be uh, I, and I think the entire school, I think all my colleagues would say this, that when, when we interact with the world, that we'd be wise as serpents and gentle as doves, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we need that. 
Okay. Well, I greatly appreciate your time, Dr. Branch. I think yeah, you've given some good insights and, and some challenges for people to think through, like the sanctity of life at the end of life as well. So uh, thank you on behalf of the Baptist Home for joining us today. Thank you. That's been a great joy. Thank you, sir. Thank you for joining us for this interview today. The Baptist Home has provided Christ-like care to the aging since 1913. To learn more about the biblically informed resources and solutions provided by The Baptist Home, go to www.thebaptisthome.org. Again, www.thebaptisthome.org. You will find links to previous podcasts, a growing number of church resources, and detailed information about residential and long-term care communities. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Andy Brams, asking you to be a voice for the aging.